Would you pray with me? Don't just pray for me, pray for yourselves as well. Pray that the Lord would open your ears and open your heart and your mind to receive the word. Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we come to your scriptures. And we come to that stone, Father, who was rejected, and yet it has become the chief cornerstone, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask you, my Father, for the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may have the ability to receive your word today and to receive your message and the message of your word. Open our hearts, Lord, and open our eyes. Oh, my Father, we adore you and praise you and lift you up. Guide us through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. May I ask you please to open your Bibles. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. There are Bibles in your pews in front of you. There are Bibles in, I'm sure, in your phones. Some of you, some of you may have your tablets with you. Um, I always prepare my sermon using the New King James Version because that's my favorite Bible and translation. And uh, if you have access to a, a New King James, pull that one. If not, just look at the others in front of you. And uh, there may be some changes here and there in words, but not in the message of, of, the, of the gospel. And so when you open your Bibles, open it to chapter 21. And I'm going to be dealing primarily with uh, verse 33 uh, through 44, the parable that we just read, the parable of the vineyard. But I want to put it in context. I want, you, I want this parable to come to mean a lot to you. And so let's put it in a little bit of context, which is necessary if this parable and the next ones that we're going to look at, and even the one from last week, if it's going to become that much more meaningful to you and instructive. Let us begin by recognizing that Jesus has kept most of his initial ministry, most of his initial ministry of teaching and preaching and miracles, his power works, he has mostly kept them away from Judea. At least in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When we look at John, he does things a little different. But in those three Gospels, what we call the synoptic Gospels, or the Gospels that have unity among them, they have synopsis up, uh, among them, um, most of the ministry of Jesus was done in Judea, in, in Galilee, away from Judea. Jesus' ministry was about three years long, and at least two of them, if not two and a half, 
he spent strictly in the northern part of the area around the Sea of Galilee. And that's where most of his miracles were done. That's where most of his teachings and preachings were done. One of the things of interest in this ministry in Galilee is that many times in the Gospels we are told that Jesus avoided notoriety. And there are many occasions when he did a miracle or he healed someone or he casted out demons or did something else and people wanted to proclaim it. They wanted to go and tell somebody else and Jesus always would say, no, keep it to yourself. Not yet. He kept saying occasionally, it is not yet my time. He still wanted to minister to the people in front of him, but he didn't want it to become an obstacle where the religious authorities would come against him right away, or perhaps even the Romans. And so he kept saying, don't say anything to anybody. Keep it to yourself. And I'm reminded of the demoniac in the area of Gennesaret, by where Hippo is there, that where he cast out a legion from him, and this man wants to go tell the town people, and he basically says, no, don't. I'm also reminded of the multiplication of bread and the feeding of the 5,000 plus in the area of Bethsaida, which is just uh, to the north there, and I marked it with a red circle, and he fed the 5,000 plus, and the Gospels tell us that they wanted to take him and make him king. And Jesus basically runs away from there. He doesn't want to be king. He doesn't want the notoriety. He's keeping things quiet. He's just ministering and teaching and preaching from town to town, from city to city. Whatever attacks we read about in the Gospels, about this part of his ministry, it's usually local religious leaders that come against him. Or at times, it may be somebody from Jerusalem who comes to spy on Jesus or to challenge him in some way. But Jesus has not at all, during this period of his ministry, faced off with the religious leaders of, of Jerusalem. He has not faced off yet with the Sanhedrin that ruled Judaism from the temple, and from Judea, from Jerusalem. He has not faced off with them. He's just been ministering to the north. But now things change. You need to mark with clarity the change that occurred in Jesus' ministry after that transfiguration when he left Galilee and started moving toward Judea, you need to mark that transition because Jesus' ministry changes dramatically. In this parable that I'm going to be teaching from today, Jesus is now right in their face. 
Jesus takes his gloves off. And Jesus is now ready for battle. And the temple becomes his ring. His boxing ring. And in this section that we're dealing with here, and we started last week, and we're going to deal with in the next couple of weeks, Jesus is duking it out with the religious leaders in ways that he had not done before. You need to see that because it's important if we're going to understand these parables. It is time for confrontation, not for hiding. It is time for battle. It is time for truth right in front of the great Sanhedrin and religious leaders of Jerusalem. Jesus actually has already thrown down the gauntlet. He throws down the gauntlet beginning with his resurrection of Lazarus just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And as he's going over the mountains through the Kidron Valley and about to enter into the city of Jerusalem. He's thrown the gauntlet when he shows his authority over life and death in the resurrection of Lazarus. The Sanhedrin could not avoid having heard about this event as he was just, just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And then Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey in a very prophetic manner, announcing himself to be the Messiah. When people scream or cry out, Hosanna, the son of David, Hosanna to the king who enters now. When they cry that out, Jesus doesn't say like before, oh, no, no, be quiet. Don't let them know. He allows people to shout out that he is the king, the son of David, the Messiah. In fact, when someone tries and tells them not to cry out so much, he says, if they don't cry out, the very stones will cry out. It was time to announce that he was Messiah. And what he does as soon as he enters the temple, he takes some ropes and creates a whip or a cord and begins to cleanse the temple of all those people that were there profiting from the worship of God. So this parable is told during the season or during that week that we would call Holy Week. And Jesus comes to the temple and begins to overthrow the tables of the money changers. And he begins to whip people and to whip uh, around and, and to open the cages and to overthrow them. And all the animals are running all over the place. And everyone is running. And, and there's great commotion in the temple because Jesus is cleansing the house to be a house of prayer. There's no more hiding. Jesus is ready for battle. Jesus is thrown down the gauntlet. There is no escaping, and this battle will conclude at Calvary. 
This battle concludes at the cross. There is a direct confrontation, direct confrontation with the religious leaders at this point. When Jesus' authority is questioned for having overthrown the, uh, the money changers' tables and cleansing the temple, and the authorities come out and say, why, where do you get your authority? He basically says to them, I'll ask you a question. What was the authority in John the Baptist? Was it from heaven or was it from earth? They don't want to respond because if they said from heaven, he'll say, how come you didn't obey the call to repentance? And if they said from earth, he gets in trouble with the people because they consider John the Baptist a prophet. So they think they're going to play it coy and play it in the middle and say, we're not going to answer. So Jesus says, I won't tell you either by what authority I've just done what I've done. And then comes the parable of the two sons that Father Steve preached on last week. The obedient son who at first says no, but goes and work in, in his father's vineyard. And the son who, who says yes, but ends up not going, which is a parable about obedience. Who's obeying the father and who's not obeying the father? And then we get the parable of today, the parable of the vineyard. And next week, we're going to hear the parable of the wedding feast. And the week after, we're going to hear of a confrontation uh, between the Pharisees who want to question him as to whether it's right to pay taxes to Caesar or not. And then the Sadducees come and they want to confront him about the believing the resurrection. And then a lawyer of the law comes and he wants to know who's the greatest commandment or which is the greatest commandment. And then Jesus rails against them as to their character. And he comes down really hard on, on why they have failed God. And that's where we're at. And it ends with chapter 24 with Jesus announcing the destruction of the temple and the end times and the fulfillment of all that Daniel had prophesied. And then after that, they catch him, beat him, crucify him. So we are in a season in the gospel right now, the gospel of Matthew, of a battle. A battle where Jesus is no longer hiding, no longer retreating, but advancing toward the fulfillment of what God had designed for his son. And so, please let's look together at this parable, the parable of the vineyard. And again, I'm going through the New King James if it differs a little bit from you. We are told in chapter 21, verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain landowner. This landowner, please understand, this last landowner in the parable is God. He is the landowner. He owns the land. He owns the land of Israel. It is his promised land. He owns the world. He owns the universe. But in particular, he owns Judaism and the land in which the temple is and the land that, that is loved as the Jewish land. It is the Lord's. He is the land owner. 
we're told that he planted a vineyard. And he set a hedge around it. And he dug in the vineyard a wine press. And he built a tower. And I think it's very important that you see these words because he clearly tells us he is the planter, he is the creator, and this vineyard belongs to him. But more than that, what blesses me is not only that he's the creator of the vineyard, but that he provides everything the vineyard needs to succeed. That's important. He doesn't just plant the vineyard with vines. He protects it. He sustains it. He creates a hedge around it. He creates a vine press. He builds a tower from where someone could watch and protect this vineyard. He builds everything and provides everything for his vineyard so his vineyard lacks nothing. It has all the potential to succeed and be a fruitful, magnificent, beautiful vineyard that is very fruitful. He provides everything, sustains everything. And then it says that he leased the vineyard or rented it to tenants or to wine dressers. Or vine dressers. Now I want you to notice that. He didn't give it away. He leased it. He gave it to them to work. As he went away. To a far country it says. And we may even think. Even though it may not be important. He went to heaven. From where he rules. But he's not so far that he doesn't send his servants. Just want you to know that he's not so far that he doesn't know what's going on. He still knows, he still has control over things, but he leases the vineyard to a certain group of people who are the tenants who are going to provide for the vineyard and its productivity. Now, if you know anything about vineyards, they don't produce on the first year that they're planted. Sometimes they take four to five years for those plants to get strong and begin to produce. He doesn't charge rent. He doesn't come looking for fruit until the vineyard is able to produce. So the, the landowner goes away and he rents or he leases the vineyard to these tenants or to these vine dressers. These vine dressers are the religious leaders of Israel. Their job is to care for the vineyard that has been leased to them. Their job is to care for the plants. Their jobs are to care for the people. Their jobs are to produce fruit worthy of the owner, the landowner. Their job is to care for what is not theirs. They are simply stewards that have received the land of Israel and Judaism and the Torah for them to produce fruit worthy of God and to lead the people of Israel in the worship of their God, their creator, their Lord, the owner of the whole vineyard. That's why he leased this vineyard to these tenants. They have a job to care so that it grows, 
so that it matures, so that it multiplies, and so that it becomes fruitful. And then we're told that at vintage time, as vintage time drew near, he doesn't charge him before, he doesn't come after. It's on the Lord's timing. When the Lord decides, he comes looking for the fruit. Because I think part of the lease is that he will take part of the fruit of the vineyard and the tenants will keep the other part. That was the agreement. So he comes looking for his part, his fruitfulness, or the fruitfulness of the vineyard. And so we are told that he first sends three of his servants. And we say three because it tells us that one they beat, another one they, uh, they killed, I think. Uh, um, one they beat, let me see, uh, let me look for it. Uh, and the vine dressers took his servant, beat one, killed one, and stoned the other one. So I think there's three here, at least the way it's described. And I can't avoid but to think of the three major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They have been sent by God to correct Israel, to guide Israel, and to tell Israel how they can be fruitful for the Lord. One, they beat. Another one, they killed. And another one, they stoned. And my thought was three, the great three prophets of Israel. Then the Lord says, or the master of the, of, the, of the vineyard says, okay, they did that. Let me send more servants. This time I'm going to send a larger group. And my thought immediately goes, the rest of the minor prophets. So now you have all of the prophets have been sent by God to allow and help these leaders to be productive and to guide Israel and to guide the Jewish people into full fruitfulness. And we're told that again they do the same thing. They beat him up. They kill some of the prophets. In fact, when you read the Old Testament and you read Jeremiah in particular, you hear clearly that most of the prophets of Israel were not killed by external enemies. They were mostly killed by Jewish leaders and Jewish kings and Jewish people who didn't want to hear what the prophets have to say. Nobody wants to hear what a prophet has to say because a prophet prophet is normally sent for correction. But if you love the word of the Lord, you will love the prophets. Because the prophets lead you to the word, and he leads you, they lead you to the truth, and they lead you to correction, and they lead you to all things that are godly. So, he, so the, the landowner sends these prophets, they sends these servants, beat one, killed another, then he sent some more, they killed them all the same, and then he decides, and I love this, I love this, it says that last of all, and I love that, 
The New King James says, and last of all, because outside of Jesus, there is not another. He is the last one that would come. He is it. There is no one sent after Jesus. Last of all, the landowner sends his son. And he sends his son with the idea that they won't touch him because he's the son. That's one perspective. The perspective of the tenants is, this is the heir. If we kill him, we own the vineyard. It's ours. So they take the son, they beat him, they cast him outside of the city of Jerusalem, and there they kill him. And clearly, it is Jesus who is predicting what is going to happen to him. And then Jesus asks the question to the religious leaders at the temple. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the wicked vine dressers? What would you do if someone did these things to you and to your property and eventually kill your son? What is the human justice? What is the just thing to do? So Jesus says to them, what will the owner of the land, the owner of the vineyard, do to these wicked servants? And their answer is, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit of their season. He will destroy those wicked servants miserably and lend the land or lease the land to a new nation of people that will bear fruit. That new nation of people is, is a foreshadow of the Gentiles. It is a foreshadow of the church. The kingdom will be taken from those who have failed and given to a group of people that might bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And one of the things I find beautiful is that the kingdom of God doesn't fail because the tenants fail. The vineyard is not destroyed because those original vine dressers failed in producing fruit. There is hope in the words of Jesus. Hope for the future. The kingdom doesn't change. The fruitfulness of God's presence on earth doesn't change because some people fail. Because it's not dependent on them. It's dependent on the owner of the vineyard. And I love that idea that there is hope in the future. But what Jesus says is that he will take the care, the responsibility for his word, for his kingdom, for all that he wants to do in creation and take it away from people who failed and give it to a new group of people that would bear fruit for the kingdom. Listen, it is clear that this parable is a rejection parable, isn't it? It is a, a rejection, not of Israel. It is a rejection of what the religious leaders of his time had done with the things of God for the people of God. 
It is a rejection of the religious leaders of Israel. Because when God comes looking for fruit, he finds not fruit. And he says he's going to give it to others. It is clear that this is a message of rejection. And it is clear that it is directed to those who are confronting him in the temple. And it is directed to the religious leaders of the first century. It is directed against the Pharisees. It is directed against the Sadducees. It is directed against the lawyers of the law who explain things away but are not obeying or leading others to obey and to walk according to the Lord and to his true Torah and true teaching. And then Jesus concludes by saying, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. The kingdom will be taken from you. I remind you, Jesus is no longer mincing words. Jesus is coming straight at them and telling them, you failed the work of God. You failed to produce fruit among the people of God. And it's time now for others to come and take charge of God's work. That's what this parable is about. And others of the parables that we're going to be hearing in the next few days will probably about the same thing. But I have some questions for you. I have some questions for you because we need to somehow find an application for us today. I want to ask you three questions in particular. First question, are we any less wicked than these religious leaders? Because it's very easy to say, oh, the Jews of the first century, oh, the religious leaders of the first century. Are we any less wicked in how the church conducts itself? Are we any less wicked than these religious leaders? How do we act in the church? How do we act toward the church? You know, we have this idea that we own the church. That we own the church. And I keep, I'm tired of telling you, but I will tell you over and over, the church is not a democracy. The church is a theocracy. We are the tenants, we are the servants, and it is the Lord that is expecting from you and from me to lead his church and to lead the kingdom of God so that it is fruitful on the day of his coming. What do we hear about the church worldwide? Do we hear about a holy church of God? Or are we not tired of hearing of pastors in the news 
over things that are being done where they think they control the church, they demand the church, they change the Word of God, they preach what they want to preach, they change things so that they get their way. Sometimes some of them are caught stealing money from the coffers of the church. Sometimes there's all kinds of other things that pastors are doing and religious leaders are doing in all denominations, not just Anglican and not just Catholic and not just this. In all denominations, there is this sense in many of, of the pastors that they can preach and teach and do whatever they want because there is no accountability. Wrong. There is accountability and the vineyard will be removed from them and given to others. Are we any less wicked in the way we act toward the church? What is your attitude toward the church? Is it about you? Is it about what you can get from the church? Or are you simply a tenant of God in the church of grace? Are you bearing fruit worthy of the kingdom of God? Because if you're not, it will be removed from you. Are we any better than others? Are we any less wicked? The second question I would have for you, are we rendering to God the fruit of his vineyard? Are we rendering to God the fruit of his vineyard? When Jesus Christ comes, will he find you and me faithful to the work of producing fruit? Will he find us faithful to the proclamation of the gospel? Will he find us faithful to living the gospel? Will he find us faithful to bringing Jesus into the lives of all people? What is the fruitfulness that God will expect from us? What is the fruitfulness in your personal life? Are you bearing fruit in your personal life? Are you bearing fruit at home? Are you bearing fruit at work? Are you bearing fruit in your neighborhood? Are you bearing fruit in the world? What fruitfulness are you bearing? If you're coming to church to be entertained, you missed the gospel message. We are here to be equipped, to be sent out, to produce fruit wherever the Lord sends us. What fruit will the Lord find in you when he comes? Will he find you faithful? The Lord owns the church. The church doesn't own the church. The pastors don't own the church. The vestry don't own the church. The bishops don't own the church. And no man owns the church. It is the Lord's vine and it is the Lord's church and it is the Lord's planting and he will come again one day and hold us accountable for what we've done with his work with his vineyard with his gospel with his Torah with his word with his scriptures the third question I would ask you which is kind of part of the second one, how will he deal with us when he comes? How will he deal with us when he comes? 
Listen, the kingdom is about Jesus. Anyone who rejects Jesus, the kingdom will be taken from them. There, there's, you cannot be part of the vine work of the Lord, the vintage work of the Lord, outside of the person of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus that must be proclaimed. It is Jesus that must be lived. It is Jesus that must be taught. It is in the name of Jesus that we must go into the whole world. It is Jesus. Somebody said to me the other day, actually a few days ago, we were talking about the love language, the book, The Love Languages. You know, we're talking about marriage, and someone said to me, the love language of, of God is Jesus. And I thought, ooh, never heard that one said that way before, but it is true. Jesus is the love language of God. Jesus is the answer and the example that God loves the world. What will he find when he comes, and how will he deal with you and with me? What kind of a church are we building here? What are we doing? Are we the church, or are we doing church? This parable is directed toward those who have failed in doing the things that God wanted to do. Will we fail in our time, in our day, in this church? Will we fail to be a fruit-bearing group of people? It's not about numbers. It's about quality of your faith and quality of your walk. The vineyard belongs to him who created it, sustained it, and has provided for it. And one day he will come and he will ask us if we also failed. If we also failed. Think about it. Think about it. And apply this parable to yourself today.